Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Mason City Globe Gazette. It's entitled, Trump Trial to Start in March. It's written by Michael R. Sisak, Jennifer Peltz, Jake Offenharts, and Eric Tucker of the Associated Press, and the dateline is New York. Donald Trump's hush money trial will go ahead as scheduled with jury selection starting on March 25th, a New York judge ruled Thursday, turning aside demands for delay from the former president's defense lawyers who argued it would interfere with his campaign to retake the White House. The decision means that the first of Trump's four criminal prosecutions to proceed to trial is a case centered on accusations that he sought to bury stories about extramarital affairs that arose during his 2016 presidential run. Other cases charge him with plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election and illegally hoarding classified documents at his Florida estate. In leaving the trial date intact, Judge Juan Manuel Merchant Merchant pointed to the recent delay in the separate prosecution in Washington related to efforts to undo the election. That case, originally set for trial on March 4th, is effectively frozen pending the outcome of Trump's appeal on the legally untested question of whether a former president enjoys immunity from prosecution for actions taken while in office. Merchan said he decided to stick with the trial date after speaking last week with the judge in the Washington trial, Tanya Chutkin. The hush money trial is expected to last six weeks, Merchan said. Assuming the New York case remains on schedule, it will open just weeks after the Super Tuesday primaries, colliding on the political calendar with a time period in which Trump will be looking to sew up the Republican race and emerge as the presumptive nominee in this year's presidential contest. We strenuously object to what is happening in this courtroom, said defense lawyer Todd Blanche, adding the fact that we are now going to spend President Trump is now going to spend the next two months working on this trial instead of out on the campaign trail running for president is something that should not happen in this country. Trump made a similar case after leaving the courtroom, telling reporters that instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here. In fact, Trump has repeatedly attended court proceedings where his presence was not required and went to court Thursday voluntarily. Thursday marked Trump's first return visit to court in the New York case since that historic indictment made him the first ex-president charged with a crime. Since then, he was also indicted in Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. The hearing was held amid a busy, overlapping stretch of legal activity for the Republican presidential frontrunner, who has increasingly made his court involvement part of his political campaign. On Monday, for instance, he voluntarily attended a closed hearing in a Florida case charging him with hoarding classified records. A separate hearing unfolded in Atlanta on Thursday as a judge considered arguments on whether to toss Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis off the state's election interference case because of a personal relationship with a special prosecutor she hired. The New York case has long been considered the least legally perilous of the four indictments filed against Trump last year with the alleged misconduct generally known to the public for years, seen by many as less grave than accusations of mishandling classified documents or plotting to subvert a presidential election. 
Chutkin officially delayed the Washington case last month with the Supreme Court now weighing the immunity question. There's no new date. The classified documents case in Florida is set for trial on May 20th, but that date could be moved. No trial date is scheduled in the Atlanta case. Over the past year, Trump lashed out at Merchan as a Trump-hating judge asked him to step down from the case and sought to move the case from state court to federal court, all to no avail. Merchan has acknowledged making several small donations to Democrats, including $15 to Trump's rival Biden, but said he's certain of his ability to be fair and impartial. Trump is also awaiting a decision, possibly as early as Friday, in a new civil, a New York civil fraud case that threatens to upend his real estate empire. If the judge rules against Trump, who is accused of inflating his wealth to defraud banks, insurers, and others, he could be on the hook for millions of dollars in penalties, among other sanctions. Trump is charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. While each count carries a potential punishment of up to four years in prison, there is no guarantee that a conviction would result in prison time. The case centers on payoffs to two women, porn star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal, as well as to a Trump Tower doorman who claimed to have a story about Trump having a child out of wedlock. Trump denies the alleged sexual encounters. Trump's lawyer at the time, Michael Cohen, paid Daniels $130,000 and arranged for the publisher of the National Enquirer supermarket tabloid to pay McDougal $150,000 in a practice known as catch and kill. Trump's company then paid Cohen $420,000 and logged the payments as legal expenses, not reimbursements, prosecutors said. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, charged Trump last year with falsifying internal records kept by his company, the Trump Organization, to hide the true nature of payments. Trump's legal team argues no crime was committed. Our next story is entitled State Auditor, GOP, Fight Over Access to Agencies. It's written by Aaron Murphy of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. The ability of the state taxpayer's watchdog to access information from other state agencies during an audit and the limits of that watchdog's authority are being tested as Democratic Auditor Rob Sand tussles over state audits with Republican lawmakers and a state board whose members were appointed by Governor Kim Reynolds. The day after Republican state lawmakers advanced new legislation that would allow government agencies to bypass the state auditor and have their annual audits instead conducted by a private accountant, Sand on Thursday highlighted the Iowa Board of Parole's recent rejection of his office's request for some information during an audit, citing a new state law approved last year. Sand said the rejection by the Iowa Board of Parole is the first example of a government body declining to fully cooperate with an audit by citing the 2023 law, which placed guardrails on the kind of information that the state auditor can seek during an investigation. When it was passed last year, and again during a news conference on Thursday, Sand called it the most pro-corruption bill in Iowa history. Today we are issuing the first report telling the public that the truth remains hidden from them as a result of that law, Sand said Thursday during a news conference. Government corruption and secrecy are growing in the state of Iowa. The 
the parole board said it refused Sands' request because it fell outside the scope of the audit and that Sands' office needed to file a separate request known, in a, known as an engagement letter for the information that he sought. Audit engagement letters set out the rights and responsibilities of the parties to the audit for the benefit of both the auditor and the agency. As noted in the audit report, the Board of Parole requested an engagement letter as required in Iowa law. The auditor refused to provide one, said a statement sent by a spokeswoman for the Board of Parole. The audit report from Sands office noted that the parole board failed to have one regular member in attendance for some hearing panels that alternate board members that alternate board members which was a violation of state law. In the audit report, the parole board said it learned of the improper action and reviewed the panels to bring them into compliance. When Sands office requested documentation to confirm those actions, the Board of Parole declined to respond, saying the information was related to ongoing litigation and not related to the audit. Sand said the report started from a whistleblower's tip. Can we tell you that the Board will fix this problem on their own? We can't. Can we tell you they fixed the problem at all? We can't, Sand said during his news conference. No one in the state knows other than a bunch of government insiders because of the bill that is building, that this building passed and the governor signed last year. The 2023 law was introduced by Representative Michael Buselot, a Republican from Ankeny. Earlier this week, Buselot introduced another bill that would affect the auditor's office. His 2024 proposal would, instead of having their annual audit conducted by the Iowa Auditor's Office, allow government agencies and officials to hire a private accountant to conduct an audit. Critics of the proposal, including Sand, have said Senate File 2311 opens the door to political corruption by allowing government officials to bypass the state auditor for annual audits. Busselot noted the hiring of a private accountant to conduct a required annual audit is already allowed for and widely employed by local governments and school districts. Only in politics could hiring a nonpartisan, independent, licensed, certified public accountant be labeled as political, Busselot said. It boggles the mind that it has worked so far, so well, and allowed for accountability and effectiveness at the local government level. Sand and Boothlot disagree over whether the state auditor would retain the authority to reinvestigate private audit reports under the proposed bill. Boothlot insists his proposal does nothing to restrict the auditor's ability to conduct an audit if there appear to be weaknesses in an audit conducted by a private accountant. Sand insists his office would not have that authority under Buselot's bill. The bill was passed out of committee this week, surviving the legislature's funnel deadline. It is now eligible for floor debate in the Senate. And the final story from the front page of the Globe Gazette today, Iowa GOP lawmakers move to limit challenge to Trump. Absentee ballot drop boxes would be barred under bill. It's written by Tom Barton of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa voters would no longer be able to return absentee ballots in drop boxes under legislation that also would make it harder to challenge Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the 2024 general election ballot. House Republicans on Thursday advanced out of committee House Study Bill 697 that makes changes to state elections law that would limit challenges to federal candidates' placement on the ballot 
create an earlier deadline for absentee ballots to be received by local elections officials, ban absentee ballot drop boxes, and ban ranked choice voting, among other changes. A companion bill also advanced in the Iowa Senate. Democrats vehemently opposed the bill, arguing it would make it harder for certain Iowans to cast a ballot. Republicans said the bill aims to maintain the highest level of election integrity in Iowa. This will make it easier to vote, not harder. It gives you more time to vote, said Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, who chaired the subcommittee on the bill. Representatives for county auditors, the League of Women Voters, and AARP Iowa opposed the bill, saying it would make it more difficult for older Iowans and people with disabilities to return their ballots. They also said it has become a constant struggle to educate Iowans about new voting rules and deadlines. Lawmakers in recent years have shortened Iowa's early voting period and stripped auditors of much of their discretion in running elections in their counties, including restricting their ability to establish satellite in-person early voting sites and mail absentee ballot request forms. Under the bill, absentee ballots would have to be received by the county auditor by the close of business on the day before election day to be counted. Currently, ballots can be received until the end of the day on election day. Auditors would be able to begin mailing out absentee ballots two days earlier to compensate for the earlier deadline. That would give Iowa voters an additional day to mail back absentee ballots. In-person early voting still would begin 20 days in advance of an election. The bill also would require absentee voters to include their driver's license or voter identification numbers when returning their ballots. Current law only requires voters to provide those numbers when they submit a written request for a ballot. It would set new requirements for absentee ballot envelopes, which the Iowa State Association of County Auditors says would require counties to incur major costs by buying all new envelopes. Kaufman, speaking to reporters, said absentee ballot drop boxes are no longer needed with the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. COVID-19 severely disrupted elections in 2020. State voting systems were overwhelmed by long lines and influx of absentee ballot requests, leading to the use of drop boxes. We no longer are in a COVID atmosphere, and there are already blue drop boxes in every single city and every single county in the entire state, Kaufman said, referring to U.S. Postal Service mailboxes. Voting rights activists and county election officials, however, note mail delivery may be delayed and take several days, whereas a drop box lets voters know for a fact their absentee ballot has been received. You have 21 days to vote, Kaufman said. That's plenty of time. Representative Adam Zabner, a Democrat from Iowa City, said the new restrictions on absentee voting could prevent thousands of Iowans from having their ballots counted. He said 13,883 Iowans during the 2022 general election returned their ballots via an absentee ballot drop box that are secured and monitored 24-7, and 3,000 Iowans returned absentee ballots on election day. And about 150 ballots that would have been valid under previous Iowa law were not counted due to new restrictions on absentee voting enacted in 2021, he said. It is a lie to say that elections have been stolen in this country in recent years, Zabner said during the committee meeting. And the truth is, we have plenty of integrity in our system. This bill is about keeping the right to vote away from certain Iowans. 
Democrats proposed amendments to make voting easier and more accessible, including automatic voter registration, expanding early voting to 45 days, allowing county auditors to begin counting absentee ballots earlier, making it harder to remove people from voter rolls, expanding use of ballot drop boxes, and allowing counties discretion to establish satellite voting locations, which Republican members of the committee rejected. Democrats are legislating to put people over politics. We want as many Iowans involved in the voting process as possible, Zabner told reporters after the meeting. We want people to have access to their fundamental rights, and Republicans are legislating for one man, Donald Trump. They want to make it harder for Iowans to vote. Kaufman, who worked as a senior advisor for Trump's presidential campaign in Iowa, dismissed the assertion calling claims of suppression nonsense that have been proven wrong over and over and over again. The new law would allow candidates for Congress and the presidency to appear on Iowa's ballot even if they have been convicted of a felony. Candidates for federal offices could only be challenged on U.S. constitutional requirements on the candidate's age, residency, citizenship, and whether their nominating papers meet all the legal requirements. That would prohibit Iowa-based ballot challenges like the one in Colorado, where that state's Supreme Court decided Trump should not be on the Republican primary ballot. Trump faces 91 felony charges in four criminal cases around the country, and he has faced challenges to his candidacy under Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment that bars officials from holding office again if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. Iowans, however, could still challenge Trump's eligibility in court. Kaufman, speaking to reporters after the committee meeting, said ballot access should be determined by the people, not activists on either side. These laws, in my opinion, make Iowa the strongest election integrity state in the country, he said. Now here's a couple stories from the Nation and World page. First, White House confirms Russian space weapon. Official says troubling technology doesn't pose terrestrial threat. The White House publicly confirmed Thursday that Russia has obtained a troubling emerging anti-satellite weapon, but said it cannot directly cause physical destruction on Earth. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said U.S. intelligence officials have informed that have information that Russia obtained the capability, but such a weapon is not yet operational. First, this is not an active capability that's been deployed and through and though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety, Kirby said. We're not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. The White House confirmed its intelligence after a vague warning Wednesday from the Republican head of the House of the Intelligence Committee, Ohio Representative Mike Turner, urged the Biden administration to declassify information about what he called serious national security threat. Kirby said the process of reviewing and declassifying aspects of the Russian capability was underway when Turner regrettably released his statement. And feds say FBI informant lied about the Bidens. Smirnov charged with fabricating bribery tale about an energy company. 
An FBI informant was charged this week with fabricating a bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian company, a claim that is central to the Republican impeachment inquiry in Congress. Alexander Smirnov falsely reported in June of 2020 that executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015 or 2016, prosecutors said Thursday. Smirnov, age 43, was indicted Wednesday on charges of making a false statement and creating a false and fictitious record. He made a brief court appearance Thursday in Las Vegas but entered no plea. The informant's claims have been central to the Republican effort in Congress to investigate the president and his family and helped spark what is now a House impeachment inquiry into Biden. Prosecutors say Smirnov had contact with Burisma executives, but it was routine and it actually took place in 2017 after President Barack Obama and Biden, his vice president, left office and after Smirnov expressed bias against Biden, then a presidential candidate. Now we'll turn to the sports page and top story, Clark owns the mark. Iowa star breaks the scoring record with a 35-foot three-pointer. It's written by Eric Olson of the Associated Press and Dateline is Iowa City. Caitlin Clark wasted no time becoming the NCAA women's career scoring leader Thursday night, taking less than three minutes to score the eight points she needed to break Kelsey Plum's record. The Iowa star, who has brought unprecedented attention to women's basketball, surpassed the record with her signature shot, a 35-foot three-pointer that hit nothing but the bottom of the net. And Clark didn't let up from there. She finished with a career-high 49 points, tied her career best with nine three-pointers, and had 13 assists in number 4 Iowa's 106-89 victory over Michigan. Hawkeyes coach Lisa Bluter took Clark out of the game with 1 minute 46 seconds left shortly after she made her final three, and she went to the bench to an ovation from the sellout crowd at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Clark's huge night put her at 3,569 points and with eight, within 80 of her next milestone, Lynette Woodward's major women's college scoring record of 3,649. Clark went into the game needing eight points to pass Plum's total of 3,527. The record breaker was a three off the dribble on the left wing near the Mediacom court logo with seven minutes, 45 seconds left in the first quarter. It's cool. It's cool to be in the same realm as a lot of really, really good players, Clark said at halftime in a televised interview. I'm lucky to do it because I have really good teammates and really good coaches and a great support system that surrounds me. Plum established the previous record as a senior at Washington in 2017. Pearl Moore of Francis Marion holds the overall women's record with 4,061 points from 1975 to 1979. Iowa has four regular season games left, plus the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament. Barring injury, Clark, a senior who averages 32.1 points per game, is all but certain to pass Woodward. And she has the top has the option to return for a fifth season of college basketball because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The crowd started chanting, one more year, one more year, 
while Clark, who is projected as the number one overall pick in the WNBA draft, was doing a post-game television interview. Among those offering congratulations on social media was LSU star Angel Reese, who shared the spotlight with Clark in last season's national championship game won by the Tigers. The Big Ten Network put out a congratulatory compilation video that included Tom Brady and Peyton and Eli Manning. Iowa won the tip, and Clark, guarded by Layla Filia, drove to the basket and banked in a shot from the right side. Clark hit a three from the left wing on Iowa's next possession. The Hawkeyes turned the ball over twice before Clark took a pass from Gabby Marshall in transition, stopped, and shot from deep. When the ball went through, the fans, many of them standing and holding up phones to capture the moment, let loose a huge roar. Bluter called a timeout shortly thereafter, and Clark hugged teammates and coaches during a brief celebration. Just grateful, thankful to be surrounded by people and be in a city that supports women's basketball so much, Clark said. In men's college basketball, down 10, number 2 Purdue rallies past Minnesota. Zach Eady overcame a slow start with 24 points and 15 rebounds as number 2 Purdue rallied from a 10-point deficit to defeat Minnesota 84-76 on Thursday night. The Boilermakers, who trailed by 10 after the opening possession of the second half, turned to their 7-foot-4 senior All-American center to help lead the comeback. The reigning National Player of the Year shook off three of nine shooting in the first half by moving closer to the basket with three dunks, the last slam pushing Purdue ahead 57-55 to with 12 minutes 27 seconds remaining. Point guard Braden Smith had 16 points, 9 assists, and 8 rebounds per Purdue, which improved to 43-3 and at home in the last three years, including 7-0 and in the Big Ten play this season. Mason Gillis hit four three-pointers and finished with 14 points. The Gophers stunned Purdue early by going 9-16 of 16 on three-pointers in the first half. Four different shooters hit threes during the 19-3 run. But then Minnesota went just three of nine from long range in the second half. Despite a roster with only three seniors, third-year Minnesota coach Ben Johnson's resurgent squad has improved dramatically from nine wins, 22 losses last season. But the Gophers lack a signature road win in conference play, dropping to two wins, five losses in Big Ten away games. Number 24, Florida Atlantic. 80, Temple 68. John L. Davis scored 17 points. Elijah Martin and Brandon Weatherspoon each had 16 as host Florida Atlantic won the Battle of the Owls. FAU pulled away with an early 15-2 run. Temple has lost 10 straight. And the Maui Invitational is returning to the Lahana, Lahaina Civic Center for the first time since wildfires devastated the area and killed 101 people, the tournament will be played November the 25th through 27th after being shifted to Honolulu earlier this season. With Wednesday night's blowout over DePaul, top-ranked UConn moved a step closer to its first Big East regular season championship since the 2005-2006 season. The Huskies, who lead number 4 Marquette by two and a half games with six remaining, host the Golden Eagles on Saturday. 
You're listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns with this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger, and our top story is entitled Shoe Sensation to Step into Corda Plaza, Former Mall Tenant Returning to Its Former Area. This is written by Bill Shea. The Shoe Sensation store will be moving across Fort Dodge to a spot very near to where it used to be for several years. Shoe Sensation was one of the last two businesses in the former Crossroads Mall. Just before the center core of the mall was torn down, the store moved to 1513 Second Avenue North. Now it is moving back. The developers of Corridor Plaza announced Thursday that Shoe Sensation will be moving into the power center there. Shoe Sensation is a perfect fit for the power center, aligning with our goal to offer a comprehensive retail experience, said B.J. Stokesbury, a spokesman for Crossroads Plaza Development LLC of Ankeny. Their wide range of brand name shoes for men, women, and children caters to the diverse needs of the Fort Dodge community, he added. Mayor Matt Beamrich said relocating shoe sensation is a testament to the progress and success of the project. What is today called the Power Center is the former Yonkers wing of the mall. It is the only part of the mall still standing. Dunham's Sporting Goods, a former mall tenant that is returning to Fort Dodge, will open a 33,000 square foot store that will fill about half of the Power Center. Maurice's, a women's clothing store that was also in Crossmolds Mall, will also open in the power center. All of the stores are expected to open this fall. There's room for one more store in the power center. Stokesbury said that that store will be announced in the near future. Each addition brings a unique flavor to the shopping experience we are building at Corridor Plaza, he said. Next is a story entitled Two Found Dead in Moreland. Sheriff says there is no danger to the public. This is also written by Bill Shea. Two people who died of gunshot wounds were found in Moreland House late Thursday morning. Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener said there is no danger to the public. He said the deaths were the result of an isolated incident in that home and no suspects are sought by investigators. The Sheriff's Office identified the deceased people as Sharon A. Jones, age 79, and Eric A. Jones, 55. Deputies and emergency medical personnel were sent to 403 First Street at 11.40 a.m. after someone who went to the home to check on the Joneses found them unconscious, according to Fleener. Deputies found Sharon Jones in the living room and Eric Jones in a bedroom. Both were dead from gunshot wounds, Fleener said. Investigators believe the deaths occurred Wednesday evening. The Fort Dodge Police Department, Webster County Medical Examiner's Office, Moreland Fire Department, ambulance crews from the Fort Dodge Fire Department, and Webster County Animal Control assisted deputies at the scene. That brings us to an article entitled, Funnel Week Ends. It's written by Robin Opsall of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. 
Election changes, fetal development education requirements, and parking meters were among the topics Iowa lawmakers debated Thursday, the last day to move certain bills before the first legislative deadline of the 2024 season. House Republicans introduced several major education bills the previous day and shepherded them through the subcommittee and committee processes Thursday. The quick turnaround was necessary. Most legislation must be passed by a committee in at least one chamber this week to remain eligible for consideration. While there are some exceptions to the deadline, lawmakers spent Thursday in committee meetings passing through bills to ensure they remain up for debate in the coming weeks. Here are some of the bills that survived the funnel deadline Thursday. Education. Area Education Agencies. The House Education Committee approved House Study Bill 713 on a 15 to 8 vote. Though Democrats voted against the measure, they praised House Republicans for the proposal, the result of weeks of work on Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed overhaul of the Area Education Agencies system. AEAs provide special education services to Iowa students. Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, thanked Republicans, Democrats, and AEA stakeholders for their work to put together the bill in the past month. Resetting the conversation, being able to kind of go back to the start and work through some of this has been a significant, I would say, victory for our republic, Wheeler said. The governor's initial proposal would have allowed schools to contract with private companies or other AEAs to meet students' special education needs in addition to cutting agencies' ability to provide general education and media services, though these provisions were pulled back in an amendment. The legislation was not with significant opposition by educators and Iowans whose families, excuse me, the legislation was met with significant opposition by educators and Iowans whose families receive AEA services. While a House subcommittee voted down the bill, senators advanced the measure with plans for changes. On Wednesday, the Senate Education Committee passed an amended version of the Reynolds bill. In the subcommittee meeting Thursday, advocates, educators, and lobbyists said the new bill addresses many of the concerns they had with the initial legislation. The House bill would continue sending all federal special education funds directly to AEAs and would require state and local funding for special education to go to school districts, which would be required to continue using AEAs to provide those services. School districts would be able to work with private entities for media and general education services beginning in the 2025-2026 school year and could still work with AEAs for these services on a contract basis. Fetal Development Education. The House Education Committee advanced House File 2013, or excuse me, 2031, along party lines Thursday, a bill that would require schools to show fetal development videos to students. Representative Molly Buck, a Democrat from Ankeny, repeated calls from reproductive rights advocates in the bill's subcommittee meeting that the material schools would be required to show may not be medically accurate. The bill highlights Meet Baby Olivia, a video produced by the anti-abortion group Live Action, as an example of what would be shown in classrooms. Buck said many of the development facts, as well as the views expressed in the video, run contrary to those accepted by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. 
Buck said she believed subjects mandated to be taught in school should be based on accepted practices and information by the scientific community. Government election law. Ballot drop boxes and ranked choice voting would be banned under House Study Bill 697, which the House State Government Committee passed Thursday on a 15-7 to 7 vote. Its companion Senate Study Bill 3161 passed through the Senate Committee Wednesday. The bill also requires absentee ballots to be received by county auditors the day before the election and requires absentee voters to list their driver's license or voter ID numbers when returning their ballots. Representative Adam Zabner, a Democrat from Iowa City, said in the House committee meeting that the measures will make it more difficult for voters, especially those with disabilities, to participate in elections. I mean, for God's sake, your ballot... You turn in your ballot on Election Day, and it's not going to count? That would make us one of the most restrictive states in the country. It's just plain wrong, he said. The bill also includes a provision limiting challenges Iowans can pose to federal candidates' eligibility to appear on the ballot. Zabner said the legislation is a favor for one man, former President Donald Trump, who faces 91 felony charges and is currently involved in a U.S. Supreme Court case weighing whether Colorado has the ability to disqualify him from the state's presidential primary ballot. Public Safety and Judiciary Hemp Regulation Legislation expanding state regulatory oversight of hemp products passed the House Public Safety Committee unanimously Thursday, despite some lingering concerns that the legislation might negatively affect children with medical conditions. House Study Bill 665 includes measures allowing the State Department of Health and Human Services to more directly regulate the sale of hemp-derived and cannabis products. The agency could penalize businesses that are not conforming to Iowa law, such as the sale of products that are above Iowa's THC limit or in a non-accepted form like raw flour products or alcoholic beverages containing THC. Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison, said when hemp laws were written a few years ago, little did we know that scientists could get into the laboratories and produce THC-infused drinks that could get people high. At this point, we're the wild, wild west. They could even be serving them to minors. Representative Bob Kressig, a Democrat from Cedar Falls, supported the bill but said he was concerned about language that could criminalize parents who purchase hemp products for their children who suffer from brain injuries, epilepsy, or other conditions that the state's medical cannabinoidal program was intended to address. Holt said he expected changes in the bill before it reaches the House floor. Parking meters a bill that would forbid double-dipping by electronic parking systems, House Study Bill 669, advanced out of the House Public Safety Committee on a vote of 14 to 9. Representative Hans Wills, a Republican from Ottumwa, said the bill would affect parking systems like the one in Des Moines, which uses phone apps or kiosks or other electronic means to sell time to drivers. If someone leaves a parking space before their time is expired, they forfeit the money for the extra time, and the next driver to use the space cannot claim the time. The city ends up collecting double rent on the space, he said. 
The bill would require parking meters to allow the use of a parking space by any user for the duration of the time purchased, regardless of whether the person who paid for the parking is occupying the space. The final story from the front page of The Messenger today is entitled, Iowa's abortion providers now have some guidance for the paused six-week ban if it is upheld. Iowa's medical board on Thursday approved some guidance abortion providers would need to follow if the state's ban on most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy is upheld by the Iowa Supreme Court. The restrictive abortion law is currently on hold as the court considers Governor Kim Reynolds' appeal of the lower court's decision that paused the crux of it, but the medical board was instructed to continue with its rulemaking process to ensure physicians would have guidance in place when the court rules. While the board's language outlines how physicians are to follow the law, the specifics on enforcement are more limited. The rules do not outline how the board would determine non-compliance or what the appropriate disciplinary action might be. Also missing are specific guidelines for how badly a pregnant woman's health must decline before their life is sufficiently endangered to provide physician protection from discipline. The new law would prohibit almost all abortions once cardiac activity can be detected, which is usually around six weeks of pregnancy and before many women know they are pregnant. That would be a stark change for women in Iowa where abortion is legal up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The rules instruct physicians to make a bona fide effort to detect a fetal heartbeat by performing a transabdominal pelvic ultrasound in a manner consistent with standard medical practice. Like many Republican-led efforts to restrict abortion, the legislation is crafted around the detection of the fetal heartbeat, which is not easily translated to medical science. While advanced technology can detect a flutter of cardiac activity as early as six weeks gestation, medical experts clarify that the embryo at the, that point isn't yet a fetus and doesn't have a heart. The rules approved Thursday had been revised to include terminology that doctors use, a representative from the Attorney General's office explained during the meeting. It supplements the law's definition of unborn child to clarify that it pertains to all stages of development, including embryo and fetus. The rules also outline the information physicians must document for a patient to be treated under the limited exceptions carved out in the law. The documentation should be maintained in the patient's medical records, enabling physicians to point to the information rather than rely on memory and thus avoid a battle of witnesses in the event that someone gets brought before the board, the Attorney General's representative said. The law would allow for abortion after the point in a pregnancy where cardiac activity is detected in the circumstances of rape if reported to law enforcement or a health provider within 45 days, incest if reported within 145 days, and fetal abnormality. In the circumstance of fetal abnormality, the board specifies physicians should document how they determined a fetus has a fetal abnormality and why that abnormality is incompatible with life. The law also provides for an exception for medical emergency, which includes pregnancy complications endangering the life of the pregnant woman and cases in which continuation of the pregnancy will create a serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function of the pregnant woman. But the board 
did not provide any additional guidance on just how imminent the risks must be before doctors can intervene, a question vexing physicians across the country, especially after the Texas Supreme Court denied a pregnant woman with life-threatening complications access to abortion. Most Republican-led states have have drastically limited abortion access since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and handed authority on abortion law to the states. Fourteen states now have bans with limited exceptions, and two states, Georgia and South Carolina, ban abortion after cardiac activity is detected. Four states, including Iowa, have bans on hold pending court rulings. Threats at MNW addressed. Two threatening statements affecting Manson Northwest Webster Community School District have been investigated this week. Earlier in the week, district administrators and local law enforcement officers investigated a statement made off school grounds regarding a weapon. There is no evidence that a student brought a weapon onto school grounds at any time, District Superintendent Justin Daggett wrote in an email to parents. Then on Thursday at the junior-slash-senior high school, a student made a threatening statement towards other students. The Manson Police Department and Calhoun County Sheriff's Department were called. Disciplinary procedures are taking place, Daggett wrote in another email to parents. The threat has been addressed. There is no danger to our junior-slash-senior high school. U.S. eases restrictions on Wells Fargo. The Biden administration eased some of the restrictions on banking giant Wells Fargo, saying the bank has sufficiently fixed its toxic culture after years of scandals. The news sent Wells Fargo's stock up sharply Thursday as investors speculated that the bank, which has been kept under a tight leash by regulators for years, may be able to rebuild its reputation and start growing again. The bank's shares closed up 7.2% to $52.04, its highest level since March of 2022 in extremely active trading. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the regulator of big national banks like Wells, on Thursday terminated a consent order that had been in place since September of 2016. The order required Wells to overhaul how it sold financial products to customers and provide additional consumer protections, as well as employee protections for whistleblowers. That consent order was put into place after a series of newspaper and government investigations in 2016 found Wells to have a poisonous sales culture that pressured employees into selling multiple products to customers, through such, though such products were not needed. Employees who worked at stores, not bank branches, were forced to open millions of unauthorized accounts. Customers had their identities stolen and their credit scores impacted. Of the millions of customers affected, a disproportionate number were non-English speaking Americans. The scandal severely tarnished the reputation of San Francisco-based Wells Fargo, which eight years ago was considered one of the best-run banks in the country by investors and analysts. Now we'll turn to the sports page and read the article entitled Four Horsemen, Fort Dodge's Ayala Davidson Ross Brothers Reach Semifinals. It's written by Chris Johnson. Four Fort Dodge wrestlers still have a state wrestling championship in their sights. Senior Drew Ayala at 120 pounds, Junior Coy Davidson at 138 pounds, Senior Damarian Ross at 175 pounds, and Sophomore 
Dreshawn Ross at 215 pounds. All won their quarterfinal matches on Friday, putting them in line for return to state finals trips. I'm going to guess that was Thursday, not Friday. Senior Kane Butrick, 132, and sophomore Luke Fierke, 285, dropped tight quarterfinal matches and moved to the backside for the Dodgers' senior Cal Hartman. 190 stayed alive on the consolation side with two victories on Thursday. Fort Dodge now has three or more semifinalists for the ninth time in 10 years. The Dodgers are currently in fifth place with 63 points. Southeast Polk is first, followed by Bettendorf, Ankeny Centennial, and Indianola. The guys on the front side have to stay the course and do what they're doing, said FDSH head coach Bobby Thompson. Thursday was a tough day to watch the guys on the backside because that just makes it hard mentally. You have to wash that away and focus on what you're doing. Ayala had the third seed dominated Bondurant Farrar's Reed Foster by a 16-3 major decision. The Dodgers senior will now wrestle a longtime rival, number two seed Jake Knight of Bentendorf. The matchup is a repeat of last year's 113-pound final where Knight got the better of Ayala late. Every match is big in these brackets, Thompson said. You can't overlook anybody, and now we're down to the semifinals. There are three nationally ranked wrestlers left at 120 pounds. Our guys have been there before. They're not in uncharted waters. We've seen Knight a lot. We have to make some small changes and then weather the storm. Davidson, the second seed in a 2022 state finalist, rolled past Waverly Shell Rock's Zane Barron's 11-4. Davidson was fourth last year. The semifinal round offers a match against number three Kale Kurtz of Iowa City High. Coy is 2-0 against him, and they've been close matches, Thompson said. This 138-pounder is another incredibly deep weight. These guys are pretty familiar with each other. Demarion Ross came up clutch in his 175-pound quarterfinal. Ross trailed 3-2 against number 7 seed Braxton Westendorf of Waverly Shell Rock before getting an escape with two seconds left to send it to overtime. With 13 seconds left in overtime, Ross got a takedown and held on for a 5-3 victory. Now on tap for the senior is 14th seed Dax Klatt of Indianola, who upset 6th seeded Jackson Winky of Ames in the quarters and number 3 Antonio Loving of Southeast Polk in the second round. Demarion came up clutch, Thompson said. We went back to the center and he escaped. He had a huge takedown late to send him to the semifinals. Dreshawn Ross once again dominated his match, pinning ninth-seeded Eugene Nagoma of Cedar Rapids Xavier in 2 minutes 58 seconds. Dreshawn is very impressive and has been extremely focused, Thompson said. He's really invested in how the team is doing top to bottom. Ahead of Ross is number 4 Vincenzo Lima of Iowa City Liberty. I've been focusing on myself and my teammates, not the external factors. Control the controllables, Ross said. I wouldn't be in the position I am right now without my teammates, so I'm thankful to have them in my corner. Utrecht gave top-seeded Jace Luna a tough fight in their 132-pound quarterfinal. Butrick pulled within 5-4 to four with a reversal late in the third, but Luna had one of his own for a 7-4 to four victory. 
Butrick will now compete against fourth-seeded Justice Yazaroga of Southeast Polk on the consolation side. Kane's match was tough, Thompson said. He was right there. We just needed to change some things up. Fierke, the number five seed, went toe-to-toe with fourth-seeded Drew Campbell of Cedar Falls. Fierke was right there with Campbell the entire match, eventually losing 4-3 to to the University of Iowa football recruit. Now up for Fierke is ninth-seeded Jackson Boyd. Fierke has a fall over Boyd from the state dual tournament to his credit. Luke is still figuring things out just as... As just a sophomore, Thompson said, he's had some opportunities but just couldn't quite get it done. After a disappointing loss in Wednesday's opening round action, Hartman bounced back with two victories. Hartman pinned clear clique Amana's Ethan Williams in 1 minute 41 seconds and won a 5-3 decision over Xander Wiedemeyer of Waverly Shellrock. Now on tap for Hartman is number 8 Colby Gibbons of Johnston. Cal is wrestling well. He knows he had a disappointing opening round, but he's battling back, Thompson said. We have two kids that we can beat. We just have to go out and do it and then keep climbing metal spots. Fort Dodge lost four wrestlers on the backside, but all are underclassmen. Freshman Trace Rial lost to Valley's George Grant Mavromantis. 8-2 at 106 pounds. Sophomore Sam Davidson fell versus Des Moines East's Cameron Bennett by fall at 126 pounds. On the backside, it's about who wants it more, Thompson said. You have to go out and fight or you'll end up in the funnel cake line. Your opponent will easily sniff that out. It's unforgiving and they'll take you out. Sophomore Riley Brown was pinned by Johnston's Parker Casey at 144. Classmate Jesse Egley was pinned by Ankeny's Tegan Pfeiffer. The three guys on the back just have to keep fighting, Thompson said. You think you're a little sore and you're mentally struggling, but everyone is. It's about who is tougher. Class 3A semifinal action begins at 1.30 p.m. on Friday inside Wells Fargo Arena. Hill Boys Win Thriller. This is by Chris Johnson. The St. Edmund boys found themselves on the positive end of a thrilling finish here Thursday night. Hunter Horn scored on a three-footer with less than five seconds to play, giving the Gales a 70-69 victory over Newell Fonda in a Class 1A district semifinal. Horn had a game-high 37 points, with none bigger than the final two he scored after a missed free throw by the Mustangs. St. Edmunds will face North Union on Tuesday in the District 1 final. The game is currently set for Humboldt High School, but could be changed pending Saturday's girls' regional outcome. Jackson Hogriff fueled a tremendous Mustang rally, scoring 33 points. He gave Newell Fonda a 67-63 lead with 70 seconds to go following a three-pointer. We've been in these situations, and you tell the kids that one of these days it will go our way, Kuckendorfer said. All the credit goes to the kids for playing for this one. They made the plays and took advantage of the situation. They really hung together and came up big. After the Gales forced a turnover, Jack McElroy made a free throw to cut it down to three before the Mustangs also went one for one at the line. Horn cut the deficit to 68-66 with the basket with 16 seconds to play. On the ensuing inbounds play, J.T. Lofsweiler stole the ball and was fouled with the senior sinking both his shots from the line to tie it up. 
Hogriff was fouled on the next possession, making the first but missing the second. St. Edmund quickly went up the court with Sam Miracle finding Horn for the finish. Mason Hoberman had a shot at the buzzer that missed, as did the tip-in attempt. North Union knocked off Alta Aurelia to advance 58-39. to That brings us to the end of today's Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>